You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now. We've been on a crash course through the uh, through the the two two let's call them the two uh, volume series of Luke Luke the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And so, if you would turn with me to Acts chapter two. Uh, while you're making your way there, I want to tell you why we're doing this. Uh, typically, our custom is to walk through books of the Bible. This, uh, the book of Acts was the first book of the Bible. You'll see why. Uh, that when we launched nine years ago, uh, we, we started walking through. And even as I've been kind of preparing for this, uh, we, we have a couple of things we want to accomplish. And, and so if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have access to a smartphone or something to get you a Bible, there's a paperback Bible in a tray of the chair in front of you. I want you to t- take that as our gift to you. Uh, but we're going to read through uh, the last part of Acts chapter 2. Now, the book of Acts is a second part of a two-volume series written by Luke, a physician, a doctor, a cynical. Um, if, if, you're kind of a, if, you're, if you're an investigator in the room, you're going to love Luke. That's how he frames the story. Like I, I, It's as if he was by a man uh, by the name of Theophilus commissioned to do uh, an examination, to, to write a research paper, or to, to do some eyewitness uh, testimony investigation about who Jesus is, what he taught, what he accomplished, and then the movement that sprung out from that. And that is the book of Acts, literally the actions of the apostles, the, the behaviors, the response to what Jesus had done. And last week we saw that we are invited into a greater story. Now here's why I think this is important. Other than the fact that on a regular basis, uh, every year or two or, or more or, or less often, uh, we want to in this sense, drill down into who we are as a church, why we exist. Why are we doing this? Why would you show up uh, at something like this? Why would you, in, in the life of our church, be a part of a gospel community, a small group of people following Jesus, applying the gospel more deeply? Why would you share this good news of Jesus, who he is and what he's done with someone you don't know or someone that you might lose their friendship if you say it? Why would we do this? And last week we saw the answer to that, why would we do anything in this sense, is because uh, we're a part of a greater story, the greatest, most powerful, amazing story. That story of God's redemptive purpose in the world through Jesus Christ is alive and well in us. And we, we shared last week that that story changes everything for us. It gives us a new identity. It gives us, we'll see next week, a new purpose. And we'll see this week, it gives us a new belonging, a, a vibrant, a dynamic, vital community that we're drawn into as a result. And so that story is the story, and it's powerful in this sense, that it doesn't crush us. Most other powerful stories crush you, right? Uh, think of an imperialistic story that says this story is bigger than yours and yours is silenced. And yet this story does the opposite. This is the only story that elevates every individual story, uh, that draws your small and what might seem insignificant story on par and parallel and a part of this great story that God is telling of the redemptive purpose in the world, that he is making all things new, that he's taking all that's broken and he's fixing it. All that needs to repair, he's bringing about in Jesus, and he's inviting you and I to see our story in light of that greater, more awesome story. And that's the story of Acts. A group of people, most of them unimpressive, not famous, not influential, who were drawn into a story to where now their small little story becomes amazing and huge. So, the story of Connection Church is uh, is that in the next uh, couple of weeks, you're going to hear me talk more and more about this. Uh, hopefully this next week, you're going to have more uh, kind of facts and figures. Uh, but one of the things that we've, uh, that we've experienced by God's grace is growth 
uh, growth in this room. Uh, I've, we've had to say this for the last couple of years. Hey, maybe make room for some people. Um, and I, I've shown this before. I'll probably show it again, uh, but it's usually just kind of a, 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 a kind of a terrifying thing to see. But I've shown a picture of the parking lot. And, uh, and I know if, you've, if you came anything close to, to 10 o'clock or after, then you, you parked not in the parking lot. And so I want to say I'm sorry for that. But, but here's how I want to frame this. On the 8th of October, our goal is that we would multiply this worship gathering to two services, a first and second service. The first one, our goal, we want to make it to where uh, our, our serving uh, volunteers every single Sunday will, will still be able to, to serve and thrive in that. Uh, the gospel community is able to thrive through that, and that we'll, we'll survive it um, and, and not ruin some of the cool things that God is doing in and through the life of the church when we gather on a Sunday morning. And so that first service is probably going to be somewhere between 8.15 and 8.30, and that second service is going to be somewhere between 10 and 10.45. Uh, and so our goal is, we think, probably about two hours and 15 to two, hour, two and a half hours between the two start times, mainly because we don't want to rush. We don't want to rush anyone out. Uh, this is, uh, to gather on a Sunday morning, it is, it, this is an important time where we get to minister to one another, uh, and so we don't want to, to rush any, like, pretend that we can, like, rush through that. And so those are the things that we're weighing out. So here's what I want to, to say to you. Um, there's a couple things and, and what to expect. One, I don't know that there's a better word for this. I, if you can think of a better word to say, but this is, I'm gonna, this is what I got. Congratulations. Uh, congratulations. Like, for those of you who are invested in the life of Connection Church, congrats. You're doing this. The only, the only reason that God is entrusting people to this movement, this local church, is because you're doing You're inviting people. You're living a life that, that demands a gospel explanation. You're being all that God has called you to be. And, and I, all I'm going to tell you is like, I know, I know this a weird way. Congrats! You're doing it! Um, and so keep it up. This, this is just one of those things um, that I, I don't want you to miss in, in all this, all the, uh, all the cool things that God's doing in and around us. And so thank you. Uh, even for me, the way I, way I describe it at Inside Connection, um, some people ask kind of what it means to serve Connection Church as a pastor. I, I say it this way. is like, this church has served me and blessed me more than I will ever serve her. And I have been ministered to more profoundly than I will ever be able to minister to this church. And so, thank you. Keep doing that. We're going to talk more about that even in the text today. Um, and so, as a result, some of the things you can expect, you can expect to be excited. This is, this is what it means to be a growing church. I, and I'll, I'll say it this way, that the sacrifice and pain of being a part of a growing church, and some of you will feel this very deeply because you know what this is like, because it is, we're going to multiply and, and, and things are going to change. Our relationships might change. It might tempt us to more con consumerism. After all, we're not multiplying for convenience. We're multiplying for mission to make room for more people. Um, that's, that takes pain and sacrifice. And the pain and sacrifice of being part of a growing, vibrant church is still a lot better than the pain and sacrifice of being a part of a dying, dead church. And it may not seem that way. It always, seem, it always seems like, hey, let's take the easy way out here. And it always seems cheaper. It's not. And so that's what I would contend for you. And, and I'm telling you, I've searched the fine print to see if there's like a, a way to follow Jesus without sacrifice and suffering. And I'll let you know when I find it. I haven't found that yet. He just keeps telling me to take up my cross and trust him. And, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together says, uh, or in, in The Cost of Discipleship, describes following Jesus as when Jesus bids a person to follow him, he bids him to come and die. 
And so I want to tell you that this pain and sacrifice that we experience is real. You should lament and grieve that. You should, it, it will feel different. You should lament and grieve that. And yet at the same time, realize there is no sacrifice that Jesus has called us into that is not worth it. Uh, and, and the way of blessing we know goes through the cross and it goes through suffering. And so the cost that, that this will, we will ultimately bear here relationally and otherwise is, is worth it. But it's okay to grieve that. It's okay. It, like I'm, I'm the, I'll, I'll, be the, I'll be the leader in that. Um, I think one of my own, one of parts of my own story as a, as a kid, I was uh, formed by an event where there was an elderly woman who sat in, we were, we were part of a large church, uh, sat in this one particular pew, and this family that, uh, that came to attend had been invited uh, by their friend, sat down, and, and, and like right before the, the worship service started, I heard the story, and, and it was kind of, they were all blown away when, it, when, he, when, they, when they said it, and you should be blown away too. This elderly woman walks up with her cane and raps on the back of the pew and says to these people who've never been there before, you're sitting in my pew. I don't know if she had an accent like that. That was just, <laughs> that came from somewhere else. And, and I remember being appalled, like, who, who would do that, right? I, I was young enough to know, ah, this doesn't seem right. Like, I don't know what the church is, but that can't be right. And, and I was, in my own heart, was like, I'll never be that. And, and I'm here to tell you, I am that. And so in the, in the transitions in the life of our church, I have felt like that woman. Uh, when we were meeting in, in an elementary school, we started meeting in a comedy club the first few months, I was that woman. I was like, this feels so weird. And I thought I saw myself as such a brave and courageous person willing to sacrifice. Turns out I'm, very, I'm a creature of comfort. I love my routine. And so join me. We will lament. It will be like, this will feel weird. And we will want to go like, this is not right. Uh, kind of demanding convenience and comfort rather than going, okay, there's something that the Lord is inviting us into. And so we want to steward resources well, including parking lots, uh, space, uh, volunteer, uh, in volunteers and kids connection. And in and, and church planting, you learn, as we're going to invite you to understand over the, last couple, or the next couple of months, is that you often in church planting choose the best of the bad options. And so bad option number one is that we do nothing. And, and possibly we just keep doing what we're doing. And then people park three blocks away and our neighbors start to hate us and we are a reproach on the name of Christ. And, and worse than that, people are turned away. People are turned away, uh, the fire marshal shows up and we make the news for getting rid of a ticket. I mean, that, you see, you see that's, that's one option. Uh, another bad option is we go into debt for about four to seven million dollars and build a building that we can all fit in. Um, that's another bad option. We can pay $7 billion in interest right now. That'd be a, 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 a less bad, bad option. Uh, that being said, it still takes about two years for any church to go through a building project like that, and we'd still be facing this. And so kind of the less bad option is we multiply this. We, we really, we lean into uh, what God's doing here and steward it well. And like the parable of the talents, God is entrusting us with something here. I believe God is entrusting us with something that is, he's going to bless. And I don't think Jesus is going to come back and go like, hey, great job burying that in the backyard, guys. You know, well done. Wow, how courageous of you to do nothing and just kind of hope it would go away, right? So this is the conversation uh, that I'm inviting you into that we will start to live out. And if you were to ask yourself why, why would we do this? Last week, we, I said, why would we make any of those sacrifices? Because we have a story to tell. And then if you were to kind of go to the next phase of the book of Acts, the community, if you were to ask, why would I do any of those difficult things that you just outlined, Jonathan? I believe the answer we see in the second chapter is because I have been made a part of an otherworldly community. So beginning in Acts chapter 2, 
as Luke is telling us about this movement, we're going to read beginning in verse 37 after Peter preaches the sermon we talked about last week, a sermon, the story, again, of what Jesus has come to do. And now you see the response of the people, the characters in this story, begin to come into focus. So beginning in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What did they hear? They heard that story. That Jesus has come and taken on flesh as very God of very God, and yet very human of very human, to take upon our sin. He took our place under the wrath of God. And he was resurrected victorious as a vindication so that we would know that if we look to him in faith and see this marvelous act of grace, we would be united with him forever. That's the same thing that the original group of followers said. It's the thing, same thing we sing, and it's the same thing of this, that gospel movements around history and the world have said as well. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the, name of the Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to outline a vital and compelling, dynamic community that is the church. Now, if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm really grateful you're here. If you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, I'm I'm really glad you're here. I, I hope you would eavesdrop in on all the things that we dream about being as a church, things that we desire to be. These are the same kinds of conversations that we were having when we first started uh, Connection Church and started gathering together and started being sent out on mission. And so I would love for you to lean in on this and, and even if you can see the places where we fall short. And yet at the same time, join us in dreaming about what a life-changing, dynamic, vital community might be. If you read verse 37 through 41, you get a kind of a rundown of all these things that are happening. They hear the good news of Jesus that that even though they had crucified him, they had, ve- had been the very ones that Peter was talking to who had taken place or had taken part in killing Jesus unjustly. They'd have been a part of this massive miscarriage of justice. And yet he says, That's, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. Now repent, that is, turn from in your own heart and in faith, turn from in your own life, turn away from that way of living, turn away from the ways of living against God and his purpose in the world 
and jump in line with the way that God is working in the world. Jump in line with his redemptive purpose in Christ. Repent, turn from your sin, from loving and and treasuring and desiring lesser things. Turn to Jesus, see the free gift of his grace to you. Be a part of this new movement. Be baptized as a picture in your own going under the water, the burial and yet resurrection of Jesus. So, a vital, dynamic church is a repenting, baptized and baptizing, Holy Spirit-filled people. Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of, your, of the Holy Spirit. This is, for, for those in the room who would call themselves Christian, there ought to be something in you that when I read that, you go, that's it. All right, when, you, when you hear that they were cut to the heart, something stirred them, something gripped them. They, they, they started to see something that they couldn't unsee. It cut them to the heart and and they looked for help, and, and lo and behold, they heard the gospel, and, and they repented. They believed in Jesus. They were baptized as a picture of their belief in new life in Jesus, and they found forgiveness of sin, and now the presence of God through his Spirit. And every one of you who calls himself a Christian or herself a Christian ought to hear that and go like, yep, I'm in on that. I'm in on that. And if you haven't, if that, it isn't something you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's what it means for me to be a Christian, that I have turned from myself and seen the glory of Jesus and, and found him to be satisfying, and now his spirit is with me. I'm not what I used to be. I'm, I'm new. I'm, I'm not there yet, but I'm, I'm on the way because the Lord is with me and he's not leaving me. He's carrying me along the way. You get the idea? This is the picture of a vital and dynamic church. So let me unpack some of those words and then kind of let it lay out what I want to talk about today. When we first planted Connection Church, uh, I started just reading books on church planting, what it meant. I was a pastor of an established church and, and, and was just reading some of these books and so just reading church history and, and realizing like all that the church could be. And, and so I'm going to pass on some of that wisdom to you. None of it's original. After all, as I'll show you in just a moment, we have a radical commitment to unoriginality. Innovation and theology is called heresy and so we're, we're going to look away from that as the best we can. And we're not going to try to be innovators. Instead, we're going to try to rediscover old, ancient, timeless things rather than things that are really trendy. And so as we, as we were a part of planting a church, and so many of you in this room have been a part of that um, and still are a part of that, seeing it uh, be established, um, this book of Acts is the picture, the blueprint of what it means to be the church. And so I want to show you the marks of a church that we see in that little second, second half of the passage. And then I want to talk about historically the ethics of the church. Now I'm drawing on resources that I would love to commend to you from, as I said a minute ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer to a 20th century theologian and missiologist, Leslie Newbigin, who had his great insights for Western Christians. He, he went as a missionary to India, but as he returned from India into Great Britain, he found that there were challenges, even uh, there were specific challenges to the to the western way of thinking american or british ways of thinking that were hindrances to the gospel uh, as well as uh, i'm going to lean heavily on a, on a historian who wrote a book called destroyer of the gods larry hurtado i commend it to you and it, it's simply about the distinctiveness of christianity so the second thing after we talk about the marks that we see of a vital dynamic community i want to talk to you about the ethics or the behavior actions of that community and lastly i want to talk about the origins the source where do you even get if this community is so great, great. Where do you get it? How does it even happen? So the marks of the community. I'll give you all five of them as you start reading in verse 42. A vital, dynamic church. Now that word vital and dynamic, well, I used the word dynamic. This is from Richard Lovelace's uh, description or exposition of this particular passage. The word dynamic is the Greek word dunamis, the power, the, where we get the word dynamite. 
That is the, the engine, the things that make, is making it work, the thing that's under the hood. Um, I, when, I was, uh, when, I, when I turned 16, uh, I, I helped uh, with, my, with my parents buy an old 1989 Chevy pickup. It was, a, uh, it was an old farm truck, uh, but uh, it was owned by a, a single man, and, and so as a single farmer, he had a lot of time on his hands, I think, um, because whenever he kind of blew up the, the engine, he went and rebuilt the whole thing, uh, and so had a brand new rear end transmission, he destroyed it, but he had a brand new upgraded rear end transmission and crate engine that was really fast, really cool, burned a lot of oil, um, but if you saw my rusty old hunk of junk, you'd be like, man, that's, that's okay, fine, but if, if you knew me well, I'd go like, come here though, let me show you what's under the hood, right, and I'd pop there, like, what, whoa, right, like, again, it's a single man, uh, and, and I happened to buy this as he, you know, was, was on the way to getting a new one, right? And, and I got this old farm truck that uh, I don't know how many miles were on it. The odometer stopped working somewhere in the 90s. Uh, and, and that was years before I got a hold of it. But it looked like a hunk of junk until you saw what was under the hood. When I think about the church, and as I want to invite you to think about the church, the dynamic as Lovelace would say, the dynamic of the church, that is, what's under the hood? What's really going on? It's easy to see kind of visible things that we'll talk about in a moment, but those things only make sense if there's a dynamic, if there's something, a power that is, something that the Holy Spirit is doing, a supernatural, otherworldly thing that God is doing, that's what matters. In fact, that's why I would, I would tell you that, like, even as I was sharing just a moment ago, as we apply this, one of the ways I would apply this is, um, God has entrusted us with a growing church right now. I don't know how long the Lord's going to do that. I can't predict the future on that. We just want to be good stewards of it. But one of the things I would tell you is one of the temptations that I want to draw your attention to regularly is don't mistake a growing church for gospel transformation. Just because it seems like on the graphs and charts to be up and to the right does, is not a substitute for personal renewal, personal discipleship, personal holiness. And so if, if we gather a group of people that's bigger, right, smooth running, but none of us are exhibiting the spiritual dynamic of having a heart and life changed by Jesus that's visible and contagious, then who cares? Who cares? We'll be one more monument, rusting and condemned in the long list of aging monuments of organized religion. So the dynamic, these marks, I think you see five. One, deep theological and doctrinal teaching. Look what they devoted themselves. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, again, when I say deep theological or doctrinal teaching, uh, I, I want to be very clear what I mean by that. If, if, as you gather on a Sunday, and specifically me or anyone else, if we're, if we're engaging in deep theological or doctrinal teaching, the deep teaching isn't coming from me, okay? If you're thinking, uh, wow, he's really deep and insightful. That was an accident. Uh, that was a coincidence. The deep teaching comes from what? The people who had witnessed the resurrection, the people who walked with Jesus and learned from him, and you think, well, where, does the, where do we get a hold of those apostles' teachings? And the answer is the entire New Testament. The eyewitness testimony of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and then the letters that, that tell us a picture of the New Testament church. That's what we devote ourselves to. We devote ourselves to it. 
And we become a bookish group of people that we really do want to dig into something that's timeless and eternal, not something that's trendy and relevant. That which is timeless is always relevant after all. And so we devote ourselves to deep theological and doctrinal teaching. Let me spend a little more time on this the best I can. The thing that the apostles were saying, now I said this to you last week, there's 10 different sermons collected for us in the book of Acts. There's about 19 different discourses, people telling other people certain things. 10 of them seem to be sermons, and every single one of them is this. It's an apostle, someone standing up, a disciple of Jesus standing up and talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. The gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, this central, powerful, we'll call it the orthodox confession of Christians throughout time and history. And this is the most powerful thing for us. It protects us. This is what protects us. I said last week, this is what protects us because after all, if you are not living in light of what the apostles proclaimed to be true, namely that Jesus has finished something for us, he has done something for us, and we now trust in and receive by faith, then you have to live by something else. In his book, Sonship, Jack Miller says it this way, and I quoted it last week, is that when you're operating not on the basis of what God has done for you in Christ, but instead, if you're operating on the basis of your own present spiritual, religious, or professional performance, then what's left is you are a radically insecure person. After all, if you're here this morning and you're operating on the basis of your behavior, your performance, how good or bad you perceive that you are, then you are the most radically insecure person in the world. You can't take, critic- can't take criticism. You can't learn. And you'll push people away to keep yourself safe. But, <laughs> but for those of us who are operating not on the basis of our own performance, but upon the performance of Jesus, things are different. We're the most radically secure people. Right? When criticism, even, even valid criticism against real sin comes to light, there's a sense in which we can say like, ha, you think that's bad. You don't even know how bad I really am. <laughs> like if you knew the real me, you, whoo, you, 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 think you've, you think you've discovered something. You have no idea. And we can let light shine into those places because after all, while it's awful to find out how broken and sinful and needy we are, it is more amazing to find out how loved, cherished, chosen, and received we are because of Christ. So we devote ourselves. You get this to the apostles' teaching. Now, two things here. As, as we walk through this, one, I want you to get a, a window into church planting, into multiplication. What we want to multiply, even October 8th, but what we want to see gospel's community, gospel community, I told you it's going to keep going. Gospel communities multiply into what disciples ought to multiply themselves into. This is what I want you to see, but it's also, historically speaking, not just the picture of church planting, but of church renewal and revival. And every great and powerful move of revival and renewal starts with this, the ordinary means of grace, of recapturing just how glorious it is that the God of the universe would show mercy in Jesus Christ on people like you and me. I say revival, that might be a kind of a turnoff for some of you. You might have some baggage with respect to that. I know I do too. There's a difference between revival and revivalism. After all, revivalism, the revi- revivalistic is like the idea that, uh, that you can kind of, uh, the best you can, manufacture spiritual renewal. You can like 
get it together. And, uh, and we find out that actual revival in history and in the New Testament is completely outside of our control. And so I remember I grew up in a, in a tradition where they would regularly, we're going we're gonna to have a revival. Uh, and it's like, uh, you know, and, and it'd be like, you know, tell all your friends, you know, advertise it, invite all your friends. And, and I think God used that. I have a love-hate relationship with some of those efforts. Uh, God has used many of those things, probably in this, same, in this very room, to, to bless us. Um, but the only problem is the one thing you ought to know about revival is that you can't do it. You can't hold, you can't, you can't make a revival. You can't do it. It's simply the ordinary means of the Spirit being more powerfully present and changing a group of people beyond their ability to discuss. They can't even explain it. And so in this sense, that dynamic, this vitality that comes, comes from a renewed understanding. You see this in, throughout history. In the face of a great crisis, people have a renewed awareness of how sinful they are and a renewed awareness of just how gracious God is. Devoted to theological and doctrinal teaching. That there really is something that happened. That Jesus really objectively accomplished something and that we subjectively have been invited into it. Second, mark of a vital dynamic church is intimate fellowship. You see this in the next couple of verses. Did you catch that? It, not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but at the end of that verse, you see they devoted themselves to fellowship, community, to breaking bread together. And then you see a picture of that fellowship, that they were holding all these things together in common. They were caring for one another. This, this is the picture of a vital, revitalized, revived, or in this case, vibrant, dynamic church, a community that genuinely cares for one another, a community that genuinely loves Jesus so much that it becomes visible in the way that they intimately relate to one another. They stop relating to one another using each other, but instead, in some other powerful way, care. Third, compassionate concern. Now, that's an open-ended statement. What we see here is a compassionate concern, in this case, for the poor, for people who were in need. They were sharing food together, and they were they were distributing the proceeds of the things that they were selling. They were sacrificially giving so that some other greater need was being met. This is a mark, compassionate concern, selling their possessions in verse 45 for anything that was in, anyone in their, in their fellowship that was in need. Fourth, vibrant worship. You can see there in verse 43, it says that awe came upon every soul. They were in awe. They were in awe of God's goodness. They were, they were, I can't believe this is awesome. Or they were to look even, if, if you think uh, in, in Old Testament terms, like um, also you see this in the picture of, of awe in Revelation, the awfulness, the awfulness of God, that apart from God's grace, to, be, to fall into the hands of a righteous God is to be incinerated. They were in awe of the mercy that they'd been given. And they would show that they, they would gather regularly, verse 46, day by day. They, would attend, they were attending these things, but they were also breaking bread together. And they received with glad hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. A, a vital, revived, vibrant, dynamic community changed by the gospel has vibrant worship. Now, I'm to be very clear, you might have a, a lens through which you understand that, Awesome worship can, for some of you, and ought for some of you, be a challenge that you are, frankly, more expressive in your emotions. I see some of the, you know, there's, we're good upper Midwesterners, I see this on a Sunday morning, some people like, like, 
vibrant worship starting to break out. And some of you are like, oh, mm, mm, right? Just, oh, right? I get it. And so I want to hear like a vital, revived, vibrant, dynamic church is expressive. And some of you need to realize like this, the Psalms are what do they, 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 they demand that we clang the cymbal, that we shout, that we lift our hands, that we clap. We make a joyful noise. You get the idea. You want to, I want you to hear that. An awful, awesome experience of God's presence will come with deep and powerful emotions, but not emotionalism. And so for the, the rest of you, you probably need the other half of this, as that some of you need to experience the awesome and vibrant worship of silence. Awe can be expressed in a number of different ways. Genuine awe is when you start to get past your personality, you get past the way you typically are, and you're made into something new. So for some of you, yeah, we're going to sing in just a moment here um, before, we, before we wrap up our time together because of this, is we're trying to be this. This is the marks of a vibrant community. And some of you, maybe for the, I know this is happening. Some of you, this is the first time you've ever sang to Jesus or sang, and, and, and I just, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Our goal as we gather is not performance. Remember, we have nothing to perform. Jesus has performed everything. Our goal is participation. Welcome. Join in the myriad of voices. But then for some of you, the good and right response is that you are silent. That you begin to get a grasp of the ineffable nature of God's grace. The kind that you don't sing, but you fall on your face and weep. You get the idea? But a vibrant dynamic community has a vibrant worship. Here's the last one, intentional evangelism. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. Now, those that were being saved, those that were professing faith in Christ, being born again by faith. We'll talk more about this next week, but it's a part. They weren't just gathering their number like people in the crowd. More were being added to their number who were believing in Jesus. These are the marks of a dynamic community. Now, here's how, before we move on to the ethics and behaviors of a dynamic community, here's what I'll tell you about that list. If you've seen the need, you've heard the call. If you see the need, if you look around and see what's happening in the life of this local church, and there's something that you go like, when you look at that list and you think, I think something is missing, I need you to see this, not as a consumer, but as someone who's invited into a bigger and better story, if you see the need, you've heard the call. And if we as a church are weak in that area, it's because you're not doing anything. And so here, you, some of you have, you know this, if you've seen, no church perfectly does this, right? And we know, even as, I don't want to say this out loud, but you know your experience of just watching churches function, you can see, oh, and they're really good at that. But man, I think they kind of kind of went off the rails over that on the other thing, right? You can see the disproportionate nature of this because that's what we're like. That's what humans are like. If we're not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, we'll make this gathering about something like this. The church will become some disproportionate version of these things. Not if, but when it happens, when you see this, friend, jump in. For many of you, the next couple of months in the life of this church, man, it's going to be an opportunity, an opportunity for some of you, a call to serve. Expect to serve. And so right now, if you're not serving in the life of Connection Church, if, if you, you see other people serving, but you on a Sunday morning aren't serving anyone, I'm really grateful you're here, and I want to contend to you uh, the possibility of a, num a number of things. 
uh, if you're not a believer, continue to receive this gospel. Believe, belong to this, this beautiful thing. But if you would call yourself a Christian, then this is a time for you to serve. I said this a minute ago about our women's discipleship. If you're sitting there going like, well, I was thinking about it, but no one invited me. No one asked me. Again, here we are. Hi, I'm it. This is me saying expect to serve. Expect to see the needs and then be called to meet them. And so the majority of the complaints that people have about the church are confessions of apathy and laziness. Well, the church isn't blah, blah, blah. And it's like, what if that's a confession of your own laziness and disobedience? Because how on earth are we going to be that if you, with the power of the Holy Spirit and your supernatural vision for it, don't begin to serve in light of it? You get it? That's what a dynamic, vibrant community would be. And after all, if, if, you, if, like, if you're kind of like, man, I really have this, uh, you know, I just have, I, I feel disconnected. I feel like a stranger in a crowd. Okay, let's assume that that's not just you being selfish. Let's give you the, let's give you the, the benefit of the doubt. Let's assume that you've seen the need and this is a call. God has made you such that now you have a supernatural vision for what it means to feel isolated, and you have a gift probably to make people feel welcome. Heed the call. Heed the call. Jump in. See the power and dynamic of the church when these things start happening. The best way I know to illustrate this regularly in the life of our church and any other church, people will move because of any particular reason. They'll move to another city, and they'll come ask me or someone else, hey, is there any church that you recommend? This happens regularly, and I have a, a, we're partnered with other gospel-believing churches, uh, and, and I usually say, hey, check these websites, look for these kinds of things. But the best way I know to summarize this, if you move, I would say, go look for these five things. Go look for this. Go look for it, and then jump in. Assume that when you start to see it, it's not an accident, that it's a powerful move of renewal. Jump in. If you've seen the need, if you find there's weakness in one of these areas, jump in. Assume that God has brought you here for that very purpose. God is present in a powerful way, and these are the marks of the dynamic church. But then there's a way that history tells us that this church starts to look, that gives us a compelling distinctiveness. Now, I'm leaning heavily on Destroyer of the Gods, a book by Larry Hurtado, is a Christian historian, talking about the distinctiveness of Christianity in the first three centuries. The best way I would summarize it is, uh, and it's been a part of the life of our church as we've thought about this, is I'm here to make Christianity weird again. As you read through the book of Acts, the story that is told are of things that are happening that are noteworthy because they are weird. They are distinct. After all, those five things, those marks, are weird. They are, every single one of them is a counterculture. Every single one of them disputes or pushes back against our natural inclination to either, think about it, believe whatever we want to believe, do whatever we want to do, not really care about anybody but ourselves, not glorify anyone but ourselves, and not go out on a limb to serve sacrificially anyone else. You get the idea? This, every one of these is distinctive and weird. And so Hurtado walks through these powerful marks of this Christian behavior. And I want to point out the reading of some of these things through a lens that I think as a church can make us more distinctive, more powerful. The gospel, the story that we are, are now invited into, changes us. 
because we have a vision for a life that's different. So if those are the five marks, here's the five, what he describes, or five of, there's about uh, 10 or 11 of them, but I think five of these stand out. One, ethnic diversity and equality. You see this now, uh, you, you kind of heard some of that language, right? This is, uh, in, in, the, in the declaration of, of this, this is for your children and those who, in verse 40 or verse 39, who are what? Far off everyone whom the Lord calls. And one of the things that was distinct about the early Christian community is it's multi-ethnic, we would use the word multi-racial makeup. Before Christianity, every single world religion was directly connected to a geography or ethnicity and nationality. In fact, you wouldn't even talk about a person in terms of their religion apart from their ethnicity and nationality. You would just say, oh, these people, these are these are, Jew, right, these are Jews, these are Israelites, as if to say, well, that's their nationality, that's what they believe. Same in this particular context, they're Romans. Oh, well, that's what, then, then they follow Roman cult religions, cult practices. Every single world religion was connected to an ethnicity, race, or nationality, every single one of them, until the gospel. And you see in chapter 4, 5, and 6, it starts to cause a clash. Multiple ethnicities are invited into this community, and they, they can't speak the same language. So Acts chapter 6 is like, so how do we steward the fact that God's Spirit is being poured out on people who don't look, talk, and act like us, have a different, right, have a different origin story, have different ancestors, nationality, ethnicity than us, and then they start to build a movement based on that. And so one of the most powerful things, the distinctive marks that made Christianity weird, and I think should make it weird again, is its weird diversity in light of the gospel. Second, active, we read this, active compassion to the poor. They had an active compassion for the people who were down and out. Emperor Julian is quoted, kind of, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, that he would lament that he said the Christians are growing because they don't only care for our, they don't only care for our poor, or, or excuse me, they don't, they, don't, they don't only care for their own poor, they care for ours. They had this active compassion for the poor. Three, they were a sexual counterculture. They were a sexual counterculture. Now you see this for the rest of the New Testament, even in Acts chapter 15, when they're like, hey, here's, here are the things that we're asking of these people to begin to live in. And it's that to, to, to not engage in idol worship, but then also to avoid and flee from sexual immorality. There were a sexual counterculture that believed that there was a, something powerful about the redemptive work of God, visible, Ephesians 5 tells us, in one man and one woman being married in covenantal, in covenantal bond. That sex was meant to tell a story of the gospel of Jesus between a man and a woman. Together, in covenant, for the rest of their lives. Fourth, they were, they were adamantly opposed to what we would call infant exposure. Now, there was no abortion uh, in, in first century uh, the Roman world, and what we know of it was, it was dangerous. Uh, it was a, any sort of surgery that was undertaken at that particular point was awful. Um, just didn't have the technology. And so whenever someone had an unwanted pregnancy, what they would do is what's called infant exposure. They would simply throw the unwanted baby out. And one of a number of things have happened. One, the baby would just die. You would just throw the baby out with a trash heap. It was a, a fairly accepted practice. For instance, if you didn't have a boy, uh, you would throw a girl out. There's a second thing that would happen is that uh, if, if that baby didn't just die, then almost every single time, slave traders would come along and raise that baby as a, as a slave into slavery or and especially in some, into some form of sex slavery. 
And Christians not only were opposed to that, that is that they would not practice it, they would adopt the children that were left out to die. Think of it, they had, an, they had an, a powerful conviction about the value of young life. Did you, did you hear that? It's for what? This promise, verse 39, is for your children. The Greek philosopher Celsus, one of his criticisms of Christianity was that Christianity cared about sharing the gospel and teaching the faith with other people that you wouldn't normally teach, namely slaves and children. Why? Because they had, they had a weird, they had an otherworldly view of the world. And last, the fifth, they had this commitment to forgiveness and non-retaliation. There's lots of ways we see this, uh, but one of the most powerful ones is that Christians did not take place in, willingly anyway, into what were, what were known as the national games in the, uh, that, were, that were taking place in the Colosseum. After all, the Colosseum was built uh, to kind of paint the picture of Roman power. And so you'd have Roman soldiers dressed in the picture of, of like, dressed like Roman soldiers or, or symbolizing the Roman emperor. And the people who were being killed were always the other. They were the poor, they were slaves, or people um, who, were, who were conquered from another nation, Christians, outcasts. And so not only Christians, not only did Christians not attend those events of, of mass violence, not only that, but they themselves, even as they were cast into the Colosseum and were publicly killed as a spectacle, they forgave and committed not to engage in acts of retaliation. So, here's what I want to pitch to you about the otherworldly nature of our story and the otherworldly nature of our community. And I think if you look with me just briefly, you'll see here how the world can tell that we really are not from this world. Did you hear me list the first two? Ethnic and racial diversity, economic justice, right? That sounds like every one of your progressive liberal friends, doesn't it? Pretty excited about those things. Here are the second two. Traditional sexual ethic and radically pro-life. That sounds like all of your conservative friends, doesn't it? And then the last one, radical commitment to forgiveness and non-retaliation. Frankly, that doesn't sound like anybody you know. <laughs> Most of the people you know would want to pick one of those. Maybe two. Really passionate about one or two of those things. And will give you a what about whenever you mention the other. But hear me clearly. One of the ways that the world will know that this community is not from this world is that we defy any sort of worldly categories. We don't fit nicely into worldly organizations or categories because we are not from this world. We were not made for this world. Now, granted, I want you, as obedience to Jesus, to be faithfully present in all sorts of places. I want you to saturate the world. I want you, all the members of Connection Church, to saturate education, politics, right, business, medicine. I, I, I want you to saturate the world. But one of the ways that they'll know, the world will know that you don't belong to the world and will want to know more is that you can't be easily categorized. Because what Christ has done is supernatural and otherworldly. You, you weren't made for this world. And 
Your conservative friends might prioritize a couple of those. Your progressive liberal friends might prioritize a couple of those. And praise God, if, if some of our friends who are not believers happen to stumble on really cool things that Christians believe. But don't miss the origins, why this happens. Why don't conservatives prioritize the other two? Because they're from this world. Why don't your liberal friends, I'm talking as though he's not us, right? Prioritize the other two? Because liberalism, classical liberalism, is from this world. And why don't anybody, why doesn't anyone you know prioritize forgiveness and non-retaliation? Because most of us are from this world. But how powerful would it be to be an otherworldly community? An otherworldly community that has a distinct marker. And the way that the world will know that we don't belong and come with a supernatural, a supernatural powerful message is that it doesn't fit into any other category. The greatest way that people will see the gospel on display in Christians is when they realize that it is not a product of some culture, ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, fill in the blank. And they will begin to contemplate a mystery that the gospel really is something that God has done for us. We've been given meaning, calling, We've been given satisfaction that's not based on our circumstances. We've been given comfort and acceptance that's not based on our nationality or ethnicity. We have been loved and valued, cared for when we were helpless and hopeless and unwanted, ready to be thrown out. So let me walk you back through those things. If you want to know where do you get this, because I know you're like, well, I don't see this. I don't see anybody doing this well. Well, let's dream about being this together. But let's look through these kinds of marks, these kinds of behaviors, and let's see how we get them. And my answer to you is the gospel. How would we become a people that start to love and care for one another and receive one another beyond ethnicity, nationality? The gospel. The gospel. (laughs) That the God of the universe has come to bless and welcome the nations. Praise God for some of you that testify to this. I love there's some of you in this room that your your first language is not English. And I love that you're here. I mean, like, your ancestor's story is different than mine. And this is the cool thing. Your presence and belonging in this place testifies to the gospel over ethnicity. And, and frankly, our friendship testifies, right? Th- th- praise God for this. But how do you get it? The gospel. How do you have an active compassion for the down and out, for the poor? The gospel. Because we realize we were poor, we were helpless, we were without hope in the world, but Christ, being rich in mercy, gave himself for us, made himself poor, that we might be showered with the riches of heaven. How do you have a sexual counterculture? When you, the gospel, you start to realize that the picture of God's sacrificial love and acceptance and belonging, uniting to people, is a picture visible in the gospel in marriage. Is that an ideal we, we fall short of? Absolutely, but join me in dreaming about this. I'm, I'm not trying to, to pitch some sort of like, like oh, we're a traditional conservative. That's, that's, that's so small. That's so silly. We're a part of an otherworldly community. We have an otherworldly story, and it's even visible in our sexuality. How do you begin to experience forgiveness, share forgiveness? And non-retaliation, I skipped one, sorry, opposition to infant exposure. How how do you become radically pro-life? How do you actually value and care about the unwanted? When you realize how cast off and unwanted you were before Christ made you whole. 
How do we begin to practice forgiveness and non-retaliation of the gospel? We realize that God, who had every right to exercise wrath and justice on the top of our heads, poured it out on the head of Jesus on our behalf. And where you and I should have experienced wrath, we now have grace. We have forgiveness and acceptance. Friends, see, this otherworldly kind of community, and again, I know if you're skeptical or cynical in the room, you're like, well, how could, this, how could we possibly, right? One of those bothers you. I, I, I just, you're all humans. At least one of those bothers you. This is, I'm trying to be an equal opportunity offender here. Every one of us has to like look to Jesus, be changed by the gospel to have a, a softness. And everyone, so don't think, if you feel singled out, you're not hearing it. Every one of you, myself included, it's like, oh, I don't know about that one. Ooh, are you sure that's what the New Testament, are you sure what those people were doing, right? And I want to invite you, hear the good news of Jesus. These behaviors and ethics were simply an expression of their new life, their otherworldly story, and their otherworldly involvement in an otherworldly community. The last thing I want to do is end uh, the last, uh, last week, you know, the next couple of weeks, my goal is that you would see not just this movement of the gospel and in the book of Acts, but you would see this movement of the gospel even in this room. And so I want to share some of these stories with you. Here we go. I'm Rachel and I'm Kiana and I met Kiana working at a local coffee shop together uh, she had kind of been on my heart and my mind and I'd been praying for her and then we had a, a shift together and she kind of opened up to me and so I invited her to read the Bible with me and surprisingly she said yes and then a few weeks later I asked her to attend worship with connection with me and she also said yes and then never really left yeah because Rachel was willing to step into my life and um, loved me where I was at. I, I saw this picture of the gospel in a way that was real, um, in the way that, that Jesus loves me where I was. He didn't ask me to clean myself up before I was lovable or that he wanted me, but it was even when I was in the middle of my life just kind of unraveling that Christ died for me and he, he loved me even then. He was willing to pay um, for that mess that I had created. Um, and, and loved me in spite of it. Kind of the sweet and beautiful and God orchestrated uh, result of it has been that this person that I shared the gospel with has now been the most consistent person in my life to share the gospel with me when I forget it. <laughs> the otherworldly community in the movement of the gospel in the book of Acts is coming to life in this room. And I hope you get to enjoy that. Uh, I don't know how you guys filmed that without crying. It's a veteran move, veteran move. I remember, I remember from both of those two people in that video, conversations that I had with them about Jesus and walked away thinking, I'm never going to see that person again. <laughs> I'm never going to see that person again. And yet that powerful movement of renewal and new life is happening in this room. Uh, it's not happening by experts and professionals. It's happening by people who are caught up in an otherworldly story and inviting others into an otherworldly community. So I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going we're gonna to worship Jesus and, uh, and thank God for all that he's doing in and, in and through our own lives. Jesus, thank you so much. You are so good to us. You, when we were far off, you have drawn us near. When we were hopeless and helpless, when we were, when we were on the verge of being thrown and cast off and thrown away, you redeemed us and saved us. You crawled into the trash heap with us to 
to draw us to yourself. God, thank you for this ideal, beautiful picture of, of what it means to be changed by that good news. Lord, we confess first and foremost, we don't live up to this ideal. Uh, the things that we have, we've seen, this, this beautiful movement of the gospel, is, it's more than we can do, and so we confess all the ways that we fall short. And we embrace all the grace that we get when we know that and see it, and we're transformed by that. Lord, protect each and every one of us. Uh, Lord, we, we want to make, make you into our own image rather than submit to being shaped into yours. For some in this room, maybe, maybe this idea of belonging to a supernatural community seems offensive and silly, and I'm so grateful you brought them here. I, I pray that you would just, even now, begin to stir their imagination. What would it look like to, to really be, to really be a, a, a community of people, to be a part of a movement that defies any sort of control Every single time this movement has been opposed, it just thrives. And so I thank you. I thank you that this, this movement of the gospel is, is thriving. It's, it's thriving in South America. It's thriving in Asia and Africa. And entire continents are looking different because of this movement. And so even if this movement is moving away from Western American centrality, Lord, thank you that we get to be a part of this supernatural family. I pray that you would now give us a vision for what it would look like to be a part of this movement in our own lives as we, as we serve and worship and fill us now with these marks of vibrant worship, of love for one another, compassion, sacrifice, care for, care for the, the people you've put around us and, and an awareness of the good news that we have to share. Lord, this is fueled by, by your presence, so now draw near to us as we worship you, as we make much of you. Jesus, we thank you for what you're doing. In your name we pray, amen.